Knowledge is power, and we are all about empowering the mamas of the world. In each episode, we will unravel and interpret the latest research and evidence-based practices for pregnancy, postpartum, and motherhood. As mums and researchers ourselves, we have experienced firsthand the overwhelming complexity of information, myths, and those classic old wives' tales. I'm Dr. Renee White, and this is The Science of Motherhood. Hello, and welcome to episode 66 of The Science of Motherhood. I am your host, Dr. Renee White. I am so thrilled that I am in your ears today because I have a wonderful guest, which I will get to in just a second. For longtime listeners, thank you so much for your loyalty. And for new time listeners, welcome, welcome, welcome. A little bit about me when I'm not in front of the microphone doing all of these amazing interviews with just such insightful people and people who are literally at the coalface of medical research. And today's guest is absolutely one of those people. When I'm not doing that, I am postpartum doulering. I head up the doula village here in Australia called Fill Your Cup. I'm based in Hobart, but we have doulas across Australia in Melbourne and Brisbane and Sydney as well. And you're probably thinking, what is a postpartum doula and what does a postpartum doula do? And if that is something that you are interested in learning more about, we actually have a whole episode on that, episode 59. So pause, go back to episode 59 and have a listen to the types of things that we do to support mums in that really fragile newborn period where people are sleep deprived and don't have time or the energy to cook beautiful nourishing meals to recover Just a little bit of a spoiler alert, that is exactly what a postpartum doula does. So we are the Mary Poppins for mothers, which according to our Google reviews, that's what one of our clients put. So if you're interested in learning more about our services, um, pop over to our website, ifillyourcup.com, and you can have a look at the types of things that we can do to support you and your family. You can have a squeeze at all the wonderful ladies who are part of our doula village. So a big shout out to all of them because we would not be able to do this without all the support and love and care that they provide all of our mamas across Australia. And if we're not in any of your cities at the moment, I'm going to say, we also have a wonderful range of fill your cup postpartum specific meals. So we've got our chock goji lactation cookie mixes, which are just amazing. We recently got in the top 13 lactation cookies in Australia, according to mum's grapevine, which was very, very cool. And our creamy coconut dal is one of our best sellers as well. So that's a mix where you just pour it into a saucepan. It's got a beautiful spice blend. You add some boiling water and a can of coconut cream and you mix it all together. And it is such a nourishing meal because we are first in market 
to have dal which contains organic bone broth in it. So you are definitely getting nourished with that. And for all of our listeners out there, I'm going to give you a cheeky little discount. If you're interested in trying any one of our products, pop over to the website, add to cart, and in the code section, put I love F-Y-C. That's I-L-O-V-E-F-Y-C, all one word, and you'll get yourself 10% off to try some of our products. So without further ado, I would love to introduce the guest that we have on today. And we've kind of got a bit of a running theme at the moment. So if you have listened to our previous two guest podcasts over the past four weeks, then you would know that we are focusing on IVF at the moment. And you would have heard the wonderful Dr. Manuela Toledo talk about the myths and misconceptions of IVF in episode 62. And then we did a bit of a deep dive into the science and the journey of IVF in episode 64 with Manuela as well. And to kind of round it all out, (laughs) and because I'm a massive science nerd for all those playing at home, in a previous life, I was a medical researcher. I've got a PhD in biochemistry and molecular biology. I wanted to do even more of a deep dive into the science behind the IVF journey and understand how far the technology has come. So if you listened with Manuela and myself in the previous episodes, she emphasised time and time again that the IVF clinic is only as good as the scientists behind it. That's where all the magic happens. You know, after the egg retrieval, they look after the egg. They've got to fertilise the egg. They've got to culture the egg. And then they've got to make sure that, you know, the sperm that they're choosing to fertilise the egg is all optimum. And so I thought it would be an amazing opportunity to interview one of the absolute pioneers in IVF technology. His name is Professor David Gardner. He's a world-renowned scientist and he is the Virtus Health Group Director of ART Scientific Innovation and Research and he's the Scientific Director of Melbourne IVF, which is, you know, one of the best. David is just an amazing individual. He has been at the coalface of IVF since the very, very beginning. You know, this is, and you'll hear in the interview, he has stayed with this particular field since his honours project, which is a really, really long time. Much of David's research has been successfully translated into clinical procedures with the majority of human IVF clinics around the world utilising some of the technologies that he developed. Professor Gardner pioneered 
the blastocyst culture and transfer, and he even developed the grading system, which we talk about in the interview, which carries his namesake, the Gardner grade, which is used internationally to grade human blastocysts. So that is the grading system to work out whether that fertilization step has been successful and then at what point do they put that fertilized egg back into mum. He completed his PhD in 1987 under the supervision of Professor Henry Lease at the University of York and in 1988 he moved to Harvard Medical School to work with Professor John Biggers, after which he moved to Monash, Australia in 1989. He is just an amazing individual, as I said. He's published over 300 papers and chapters. He's edited 15 books on IVF and embryology. His collective works have culminated in over 30,000 citations, which for all those scientists out there, you will know how amazing that is. And it's, you know, without kind of saying he's one of the most highly cited scientists in reproductive biology and medicine in the world today. Some of the things that I was very curious to understand, as I said at the beginning, was how far the technology has come and what the influence has been on the success rates of IVF. You'll hear in the interview how it was literally like one in a blue moon they were able to successfully re-implant an egg and, you know, the mother was able to have a, a successful pregnancy, whereas these days that success rate is much, much higher. And the other topic that I can't wait for you to hear about is how artificial intelligence or AI is now playing a role in the IVF journey and what we can expect for the future of IVF. So without further ado, here is Professor David Gardner. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Professor David Gardner, how are you today? I'm very well, Renee. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, if the listeners have all been playing along at home, they would have heard This is kind of our IVF series of podcasts. You are the final chapter and this is where we are going to deep dive into the science of IVF because you are one of the pioneering scientists in this field and I wondered, I always love to ask scientists when they come onto the podcast, yeah. how you first got interested in this particular field? Because it seems from your bio that mm-hmm. you kind of started in this area and you've stayed the entire <laughs> time, David. So there's yeah. got to be something <sighs> there that's kind of kept you in the whims of IVF. Yeah, that's that's a very good question. So I, I started my undergraduate as a biochemist cell biologist. And I got to the point where I was deciding what to do and, uh, you know, picking an honors project. And I was actually tapped on the shoulder by a professor. And this was in the University of York in the UK by the name of Henry Lees. And he says, we're going to start working on embryos and we think you'd find it really interesting. So I said, "Okay, this sounds never seeing an embryo before. Um, 
And I have to preface this by saying this was in 1983, so 40 years ago, and you couldn't grow embryos. They just didn't develop very well. Whether it was a mouse or a human, we really didn't understand what they needed or how to grow them. So I started this project, and it was called the two-cell block. And that's because the mouse embryo went to the two-cell and then just stopped. Right. So it was an appropriate name for the project. So uh, I started working, and immediately, as I read around the project and, and I actually visualized what embryos were about, I just fell in love with it. Yeah. It was a simple passion that I had and the realization. I was looking at sort of this omnipotent cell, the egg, and then we fertilized it, and then everything came from it. And the more I started to think about it, the more I read about it, I thought, my goodness me, this is incredible. Within a few days, you can watch the embryos develop. Not in the dish at that stage. We had to sort of remove them and have a look at them. And I just became really fascinated. And then from a biological perspective um, and having a very uh, quizzical mind, the realization that the embryo did something different on each day, because as a biochemist, I was interested in, in what it was doing. And the more questions I asked, the more perplexed I got, because it changes all the time. So it's not as if you say, I'm studying the embryo. You really should say, what day are you studying the embryo? Day one, two, three, or four? Because it's different on each of those days. And then sort of the really defining moment was in that year of 1983, I got to meet Bob Edwards, as in Edwards and Steptoe, who actually, you know, made Louise Brown the world's first test tube baby. Very serendipitous. I was invited to have a dinner with him. I know, right? As an undergraduate, I, I'm meeting with wow. this Cambridge professor who was giving this lecture at the University of York. And by default, I was the only person working at Embryos. In the, entire, in the entire university. So I get to hang out with the greats. And Edward says to me, um, so what, what do you do? And I said, well, I, I've got this project called the two-cell block. And he smiled and put his arm around me and said, ah, the death of many a good PhD student. <laughs> and it was something about that, that first encounter that I'll always remember. And I got to sit next to him all evening and ask him lots and lots of questions about the future of IVF. Put a long story short, he became quite an integral part of my life. And uh, he was a, became a great mentor and went out of his way to kind of look after my career. So it's something about me, a very young, young uh, scientist that he found both endearing and perhaps entertaining. And, and that's really how I started. And I then thought, an honours isn't enough. And I, I went to my supervisor, said, you know, I'd like to stay and do a PhD. And he said, yeah, that would be a great idea. And the rest is history. The reason I've not changed fields is because, like I alluded to, we learn so much about life. And again, every day it changes. So just for an example, if I may. Yeah, sure. The, the, the fertilized egg, the egg is an exquisite cell. It's the largest cell in the human body. But it's brilliantly adapted to staying in the ovary for up to 40 years and still giving you a baby. So think about that. It's a cell that's adapted to just sitting there for 40 years and in many ways, my wife used to joke that I've got egg-like properties because I'm very good at hanging around and doing not a lot for a long period of time. <laughs> but the reality is, by the time you get to the implantation, the embryo's got about 100, 150 cells. And it's only got two cell types, so it's not that complicated. It's got a small group of cells that are going to form the baby, and the rest of the cells are going to form the center. But I was really curious because the behavior of this group of cells was the opposite of the egg and the early embryo. Cut a long story short, I made a bit of a discovery that they're very like cancers mm. in terms of their biochemistry and metabolism. And if you think about what an embryo has to do when it meets mommy at the uterus, it has to invade. 
and it has to be uh, set up a blood supply. It has to do all these things that no other tissue should be doing. And this has been something that's been on my mind for 40 years, and I can tell you now we're still working on it. The reality is it's not that embryos are like cancers. It's like cancers are like embryos. Mm. Because the more we've discovered over the last four decades is that cancers have taken every trick in the book that our beautiful embryos used to form a pregnancy. They've just abused the systems. And obviously it, it goes further than that. But in terms of the initial invasion, in terms of the biochemistry, there's a 99% homology. Now, that in itself is enough to keep somebody fascinated for life, right? Absolutely. So yeah. yeah. So the list goes on. And, and I was very fortunate to have made some, you know, quite monumental discoveries along the way, and one of which was how to actually grow the human embryo to the blastocyst stage. The problem we had historically before that is that we could only grow the human embryo for about two days, so mm-hmm. about four to eight cell stage. Then we had to put it back into the uterus. Unfortunately, it doesn't belong there at that stage. It belongs in the fallopian tube. And we know from all the animal models, if you get this asynchrony wrong, in other words, put the embryo in the uterus too soon, it doesn't do very well because we know that the oviduction uterus provide different environments for the embryo. So by growing the embryo to the blastocyst, we were able to synchronize both mom and the embryo and we effectively doubled implantation rates. So that paved the way to single transfer. So this was in the mid-90s, and it was a very exciting time, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. But the serendipity of life is I was in Chicago in 96 talking about all of this developments that we'd made, and we could grow the embryo for five days, and we were going to improve implantation rates. And there were a group of stem cell biologists from Wisconsin sitting in the back. And for years, they, everyone had been trying to find human embryonic stem cells, how they could get that. And I'm to- putting my beautiful embryos up, just like this one here. This is a yeah. Um, and I said, this is going to improve in pregnancy rates. And they just went, oh, my goodness, there's the stem cells sitting in there. So we worked with them. And within a year, the world's first human embryonic stem cells were derived. Oh, wow. So it's, science is incredible because you never know who you're going to meet, who you're going to talk to, how things are going to happen. So that's a really long-winded <laughs> answer to your question of why I've stayed in this field for 40 years, because... It's had so many incredible clinical, academic, tangible spin-offs. Yeah, from all so absolutely. I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of what I do. I love it. It's, it's amazing. And even when I was talking to Manuela about, I guess, the process of IVF, you know, she was emphasising how the magic happens in the lab. You know, you have to have an amazing team of scientists behind you to be Mm -hmm. able to create this magic. And you alluded to this earlier when you were saying, you know, when you were looking at the embryos, you had to obviously take them out of their culture (laughs) in order to view them. I'd love to know how has the technology progressed from 80s, 90s to 2000s where where are we at and and then how does that reflect in terms of success rates of of families having children good question really good question you're not going to believe the answer okay because the, <laughs> in the early days going back into the 80s we really didn't have very good incubators ones that could really control the gases that we wanted and the only realistic way to do it was to use a glass desiccator Mm-hmm. So it's imagine a great big glass bowl that you can, you know, you can open up and put things in and seal. Uh, and then you would purge that with gas. 
And I, I got that from visiting, um, again, Bob Edwards at Bourne Hall in Cambridge. And Bob had this beautiful office overlooking these gardens in Bourne. And on his mantelpiece was a dirty glass desiccator, all chipped. And I said, Bob, why have you got a glass desiccator in your office? And he put his arm around me again and said, David, my boy, we grew Louise in that. And wow. Went, so I went back to York and I bought glass desiccators. And for all my PhD and even my early postdoc, I was using what I called a room with a view. I used to put my embers <laughs> in these glass bowls and purge them. So that was the early days. And it works really well. Then incubator technology got better, mm -hmm. and we could in control not only the CO2 that we have to do, which regulates the pH of the media, but we could control the oxygen. And the significance of that is that you and I are breathing atmospheric oxygen, and we're quite happy. That's about 20% at sea level. Inside the, our bodies, at the capillaries, inside the oviduct and uterus, it's actually about 5%. And so, actually, the concentration of the oxygen has a profound effect on cells, mm. eggs, embryos. So, one of the things we did early on is then move to lower oxygen concentration. So, this is a transition into the, into the 80s, going into the 90s, was this move to low oxygen. And that, that did increase pregnancy rates. That was great. Oh, wow. But for most of the time, until about 10 years ago, we were still growing our embryos in a conventional little culture dish, a plastic dish a circular dish in drops of medium. Um, they would be about 50 microliters, so quite small, but mm -hmm. compared to the embryo, huge. And remember, the size of the embryo is smaller than a full stop on a printed page. Right. So, so, so some context, it's very small, even though at implantation it's only got about 150 cells, it's smaller than a full stop. And then we would have a, a layer of a paraffin oil to, to stop the evaporation of the drops. That was standard for decades. And you're quite right. In order to look at them, we would have to go to the incubator, open the door, take the dish out, put it on the microscope, have a look, then put it back. And then you'd write it down. Or we got very fancy in the 90s because we had cameras and we could take pictures, <laughs> right? <laughs> so in the early 90s, we started taking, you know, snaps of them. And that was really fascinating. And as an aside to that, because we were the first lab in the world, at this time, I'd, I'd moved to Denver, by the way. So mm -hmm. in, in the mid-90s, I, I moved to America um, to a place called the Colorado Center for Reproductive Medicine. And we were the first clinic to introduce this, what we call blastocyst transfer. This is the day five embryo transfer. Mm -hmm. And because we were the first clinic to do it, there was no grading system on how right. to actually, how, how do you know which is good from bad? Yeah. So yeah. we took a lot of these Polaroids of, of embryos and we created what became known as the Gardner grade, and we published this in 1999, thinking this would be, you know, the first of many. And to this day now, it's probably the most used worldwide grading system for the human wow. embryo. Wow! It's kind of, it's very humbling because, you know, we thought this is just the start. And, you know, nearly 25 years later, it's still been used. So that's nice. Yes, that's a but, beautiful legacy to have. Yes, it, it was quite quite a nice thing to have, I agree. <laughs> so moving on from that, though, we would still have to take the embryos out of the incubator. Mm -hmm. And then along came time-lapse technology, whereby the incubators themselves started to have cameras built into them. So rather than to have to go into the incubator, open the door, take the dish out, which did have some problems for the embryo because it meant there was changes in temperature and the gas, we could start to visualize the embryos all the time. In fact, every 10 minutes. So imagine this, we're, we're looking at the embryos with new eyes. So, so I'm 30 years into my career, and then time-lapse comes along, 
first thing I thought was, well, who knew that all this interesting stuff happened at 2 a.m.? You know, because yes. I'm, in, you know, really, it was in, incredible. We started to discover all kinds of things about how the human embryo developed. So the beauty of it is, of course, not only did we learn more, we could start to look at uh, development, not just from morphology, but in terms of time, making sure that things happened at the right time. Yes. So we created algorithms which could help us assess what we were looking at. So as well as having, say, the Gardner grade on day five, we could look at other time points. For example, what time did it make a two cell or a four cell? What time did key morphological events happen? And that was great. But even then, we were only using maybe seven or eight time points. Remember, right. we're taking an image every 10 minutes. So how are you going to use all that? Well, of course, the answer lies in artificial intelligence. Yes, I definitely want to dive into this because yeah. <laughs> I'm this, fascinated by all yeah. this technology. Yeah, this is where it's got really exciting. We, working with our colleagues in uh, Sydney, were able to create an artificial intelligence system through deep learning. It was one of the first of its kind. And it was one of the first to be published, whereby basically the computer got so smart it could pick the embryo as well as we could, mm. which is you know, kind of humbling. Now, what we do with that data now is we actually use it to augment our decision. So we don't let AI make the decision. Yeah. We work together to make right. a more informed decision. But 99% of the time, it's the same embryo, which is really useful. But AI, yes, it, it truly is going to revolutionize the future of what we do because we're getting so much information about both the embryo, the gametes, the patients themselves, and AI is a beautiful way that we can start to tailor an IVF cycle to the individual couple in the future. Absolutely. And I think, you know, in lots of other treatments of you know diseases, disorders, things like that, that personalised kind of medicine seems mm -hmm. to be you know, that running theme. And yeah. I, I like the yeah. fact that you said that you work in concert with, with AI because I think there's some people out there who think that robots are going to take over the world and that humans are going to become redundant in this scenario. What's yeah. your opinion on that? It, 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 to me, as a scientist, I've always had the perspective of, um, you can't beat your gut instinct as well, yeah. and you've got to have the hands for it and, and things like that. What, what are your comments on it? Well, what I think is, is quite clear that I don't, we can come, come into this in a minute because we're on the verge of a technological breakthrough changes in IVF as well as AI changes. Right. So I actually think the next five to ten years are going to be quite revolutionary in how we treat in the lab. So I think that's a bold statement, but I'll... I'll Put my hand yeah. on it. Um, <laughs> we'll timestamp that, David. <laughs> you can do that. You can do that. As far as AI goes, but obviously, I mean, we use it all the time. It, it's a bit like saying stop using your smartphone. Mm. You know, you, you won't because, you know, it's so useful for, for various things. And AI is built into that, right? There's algorithms built into all these things, and they actually augment our lives. You know, it's your choice to take it or not what information it gives you. Yeah. Um, but with regards to the complexities of the first week of life, about which we still know relatively little, though we know a great deal more than we did 40 years ago, the, the opportunity to use artificial intelligence to help us understand the events better is just so exciting. Mm. Absolutely so exciting, yeah. But there's the amount of data, right, if we take a standard lab, there are so many variables that go in to doing what we do in the magic room, as it were, the IVF laboratory. 
Okay, we have to process the sperm, we have to select sperm, we process eggs, we select eggs. We do various forms of uh, fertilization, whether it's standard IVF, where we add the sperm to the egg, or where we think, for good reason, that the sperm needs a little bit of assistance. So we do a thing called intracytoplasmic sperm injection. We pick up the sperm in a glass needle and inject it into the egg. We grow it for five days, make the decision which one to transfer and which one to, to cryopreserve. There's other variables. I mean, we have so much going on in the lab. You know, we have different media, we have different dishes, different people, all kinds of things. And they all impact. It's this ultimate multivariable equation. And it's impossible for a human to, to take all that information and, and come up with something meaningful out of it. And this is where I get excited about artificial intelligence. We've proven pretty well that AI can help us enormously at select embryos. Mm-hmm. And the next iteration is how can it help us identify, for example, the best sperm okay. out of millions? Okay, that's a real challenge. Yeah. How can it help us get feedback from all the variables in a laboratory and optimize everything, make, make sure everything's running perfectly and giving us real-time feedback on our success rates and mm-hmm. optimization every step of the way? So that, that's going to be tremendous in itself. How do we know that when we give patients various drugs – that it was an optimum for them because we're all so different. Yes. You know, drugs like whether you're taking ibuprofen or paracetamol, you know, the doses are all tested probably on a 40-year-old white male, yeah. <laughs> right? And we know that if you're going to give the um, some analgesics to our children, you, it's a different dose, right? Mm-hmm. But, but we know that how do we establish for all the different patients what's the right dose, what's the right drug? And I think this is where AI and almost some of what you call pharmacogenomics will feed in to optimize, make it really true personalized medicine. I think that's the exciting part mm. of optimization of treatment. I, I, I'd love to know what you are currently seeing as the biggest gaps in the technology. What is it that, I guess, the people who are at the coalface in the laboratories, what are they chasing at the moment? Okay, I think gaps is, um, I, I wouldn't use the word gap because it sounds like that's a deficiency. I think okay. what we do from A to Z, from egg pickup, sperm preparation to transfer is incredible. But what I would say is more of an artisan approach. Right. Okay, so I put it into the context. You can imagine that they're all craftsmen, all the embryologists are superb craftsmen. But the demand for IVF is go- growing exponentially worldwide. Mm. And, and there is a dearth of, of staff, and it takes up to two years to train an embryologist. So how can we actually make things easier in the lab? And I think that's the transition. So rather than a, a gap, what I see is improving efficiencies. Right. And the way I see that happening is by looking at everything we do and then talking to engineers. Because there's so much happening in various fields, one of which is microfluidics. Mm-hmm. which is this capacity or laboratory on a chip where you can actually scale down. Instead of using large volumes, you scale things down to very, very small volumes, sub, sub-microliter levels, it's very small volumes. And you can use that for, for enhanced diagnostics and preparation of cells. There's another thing in 3D printing where you can now do 3D printing with two-photon polymerization and make these devices that can encapsulate individual eggs or embryos to help us do new processes. So we're we're looking at ways that we revolutionize culture and ICSI, even cryopreservation, through the capacity to to miniaturize the devices around it. 
So That's rather than be, I know, right? So rather than being, we require the artisan approach. Yeah. But what we're trying to do is basically provide better tools to do the job. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like saying, right, I'm a great driver, but I've got a, a manual car, okay? And then you go, right, you're still a great driver, but we're going to give you this Tesla. Yeah. Right. You, you get the you get the concept. Yeah. You're still yeah. drivers. You're still good drivers. But that's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, that's where we're going with the laboratory. It's just optimizing all, all, all the things. Having said that, if you want to say one of the challenges, what we still don't know is I don't, something I've been chasing for, again, 40 years, is how do you, when you use the morphology, a grading system, or whether you use artificial intelligence, you're still only looking at the embryo. You're only looking at it. So I like the analogy would be like, Renna, you go to the doctor for your annual checkup, and she smiles at you and you go, wow, you look great. And that's all you got. Yeah. You would change. I'd go, no, please do the blood pressure, take a sample, do yeah. Come on. So what we've been working on in the background is ways of doing non-invasive analysis of embryonic health. Mm-hmm. And by measuring simply the spent culture medium. And from doing that, we can actually get a pretty good indirect measure of how metabolically active a single embryo is. And that seems to be related to pregnancy out as well. So this is, again, another parameter we're chasing hard is what are the metabolic biomarkers of a healthy baby? And can we do it when the baby's only got 100 cells? Oh, wow. On the the culture medium, I'd love to touch on that because Manuela was mentioning in the last episode that each lab would typically have their own unique media formulation and and I guess what are the what are the staples within that? How has that progressed? Because that's obviously for all those playing at home, if you've never been yeah. in a lab and you're not a scientist, yeah. this is the media, this is like the culture that is providing all the nourishment and nutrition to yeah. the egg. Mm-hmm. Is its life source essentially? Yeah. And the other thing that I wanted to ask as well, which is a bit of a dorky science question, and I asked Manuela, and she she refused to answer. Oh. <laughs> but I said back in the day when I was in the lab, yeah, and I was doing my Hail Mary experiments, I used to sing to my cells <laughs> and give them. Uh-huh. Sweet words. And I said, is that something that happens in the lab? And she said, I can't reveal any of those secrets. (laughs) I love that. So as part of everyone's unique culture medium, uh, is there a a notion for some beautiful music in the background or something like that as well? Because we know it works for plants, right? (laughs) Yeah. Well, as a frustrated musician myself, we'll come back to that. Yeah, okay, okay. we'll park that. My my, my alter ego, we'll put that over there. Now we'll talk about (laughs) the media. Actually, today, because we've been able to commercialise the media, no one has to do that boutique anymore. We actually buy it. So that's the good news because it's very difficult to make because over the years it's got more Mm. and more complicated. 40 years ago, there was only eight components, which was a, a few salts, and some a, sh- a few sugars. Hey, guess what? It didn't work very well. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we got better, and now the media we use today have the capacity to mirror somewhat the uh, overlooked in the uterus, and and that was a serendipitous moment again. Back in the early nineties, I was doing IVF with um, John Leeton, Professor John Leeton. and during a tea break, because back then you actually had tea breaks, uh, John asked me. How could he, as a physician, 
help me in the lab improve IVF? And I said, well, that's easy, John. Give me oviduct and uterine fluid samples. Okay. Because I'd already done this in the mouse and in the pig, and we've made better media as a result. And John, true to his word, said, no problem, let's do it. So over the course of a year, he got me samples of oviduct and uterine fluids from his patients at various stages of the menstrual cycle. Wow. And what we found was that the oviduct was very different to the uterus. Yeah. But what was amazing was the nutrients that were most abundant in the oviduct were the ones that supported the early embryo. We knew what they were, and they were there. And vice versa, the ones that were good for the blastocyst, the later embryo, were low in the oviduct, much, much higher in the uterus. Mm -hmm. So I always like to think, obviously, mom knows what's best for her baby, even before it's implanted. Yeah. So that helped us develop what we call sequential media, a biphasic thing. And, and that was really a, a great thing. The media now um, are just more than salts and sugars. They've got amino acids. They've got vitamins. And the other thing they have is that they will change the macromolecule component. Um, and one of the, my favorite molecules in the whole world is hyaluronic acid. And not just for my, you know, my skin. Here, I was going to say, I definitely use that. Yeah, if you see that glow, yes, no, it's, it's, not, it's not the sort of cross-linked stuff that you use um, on your skin, but it's this wonderful micromolecule that's present in the, in the uterus and fallopian tube. And we've got that in our culture media too. And that's a long story. That's a whole podcast in itself, but it's, it's a wonderfully complex environment now. And it supports beautiful embryo development. Now, going on to the singing component. Yes, tell me about okay. the singing. Well, one of the things that we don't currently do is move the embryo. The embryo sits pretty much in the dish with a microscope, and it sits there for five days. Now, in vivo, the embryo does move around quite a bit. So mm -hmm. there is some data to suggest that if you can move the embryo around, you actually should improve development. And that's one of the things that our team and others are working on right now. But if you take it back to sound, right, if you were able to put a subwoofer or some speakers on your incubators and really have that pumping through, that would agitate your embryo. So this is where sort of the mindset is, is that if you really want your embryo to grow, I think the Foo Fighters is probably the best way. <laughs> but we, we've never actually proven that. So, you know, Dave Grohl, watch this space. You, you may come in handy in embryology. So... Yeah. Oh, that's that's fascinating. Uh, yeah. Can we touch on the hyaluronic acid? Because I'm yes, very keen to understand what is that? Was that like a kind of big leap of faith? That one mm. was that a huge breakthrough in in the technology? And what is it, it actually doing in there? Oh, such a good question. Um, so it was really again in the nineties we were looking at ways we could improve the medium. And it just dawned that one of the things a lot of labs were doing originally was adding patient serum. Yeah. And serum is a pathological fluid. It's not a, a biological fluid per se. You know, you have to let the blood clot and take it out. So it's the platelets have all reacted. And so you've got all kinds of inflammatory markers and cytokines in there. So it's not a natural product. And we were adding this, and we still do, to tissue culture cells. It's for those people in the podcast not familiar with tissue culture, you take a, a medium or a brew of chemicals and then you add this biological component called serum. Um, it, it's really not very good thing for cells or embryos. So we got away from it. But rather than be simplistic and just add one macromolecule, which in this case was serum albumin, we wanted to know what else we could add. So again, we went back and looked at the oviduct and uterus and what data was available. And it turns out that in the uterus, hyaluronic acid increases dramatically at the time of implantation. So this led us 
to follow this molecule and a few others. It turns out that hyaluronin was great at helping the embryo grow, but the really serendipitous moment is when we did embryo transfers in animal models, and it improved pregnancy outcome. Oh. Um, so this, this was this concept that putting embryos in a high hyaluronin environment actually promoted implantation, which then became known as a product called Embryo Blue, which is a whole other story. And we started using that in America, and it, it works really well. And there's been <clears throat> many, many studies done in the later Cochrane Report, which is a big, super study looking at all other studies. It comes out in favor of the fact that, yes, it promotes implantation. What does it do? That's something that we're still trying to work out exactly. So I can't give you a definitive answer, but check in in a couple of years. I think we might have an answer then. Yeah, maybe that's part of the five to ten year breakthroughs that we're going to see. Yeah. I think, and we've touched on this a few times, in terms of microscopy and that technology with Mm -hmm. IVF, we've obviously come a long, long way. We've got, you know, things like EM now, and as you said, you know, if you walk into the doctor's surgery and they're like, oh, you look great. It's like, yeah. Yeah. what other, I guess, images do we have of, you know, embryos, blastocysts, things like that, that has mm-hmm. helped us, uh, you know, and yourself and the rest of the teams, like, yeah. assist with, with this process of IVF? Well, the microscopies, the conventional microscopies that we use are what we call light microscopy. So basically you're shining white light through the cells and you can visualize in quite detail what cells you're looking at. You alluded to EM and this confocal, but these tend to be more and more, they're, well, they're definitely invasive. Mm-hmm. So we, we don't use those. But what's really been exciting is some new developments in fluorescence microscopy. So rather than using white light, which is specifically what we have when we turn the lights on in our rooms, you can actually expose embryos to specific wavelengths of light. Mm-hmm. Now, the interesting thing and why you want to do that is that it's, it's actually comes back to metabolism. So if you think about it, what we do is, as humans, we're looking, and, and because of our capacity to only see parts of the visible spectrum, or actually the spectrum, that's what we perceive. We don't see the far red or, or, or you know, uh, infrared, as it were, and we don't see UV. So what if you could look at cells, but with different wavelengths? But we can't see what's happening, but the cameras can record this camera technology has, has incredibly sensitive for various means of quantification. The reason that's important is that even though we can't see what happens at different wavelengths, the very things inside each cell, the organelles, and all the metabolic goop inside the cytosol, all emit at different wavelengths. So as you go down all the different wavelengths, every time you excite a cell with light, they give an emission. And you can capture that, not visually, but with a camera, and it can quantitate it. And you can change the wavelengths. And as you change, you get different information. So there are two ways of doing it. One is called FLIM, fluorescence lifetime imaging, which is lovely, FLIM. And the other one is called hyperspectral, when you use lots of wavelengths. Both of these have now been used to look at the metabolic state of an embryo. Mm -hmm. Because the various things that are involved in creating metabolism and energy have different wavelengths. And you the data today is very exciting. It looks like you can indirectly quantitate the health in terms of the metabolism of an embryo through different wavelengths of light. Mm. So perhaps in the future, as well as sampling the medium, 
you can actually use specific light wavelengths to capture some really key things about the cell's activity. Not how it looks, but what's going on inside. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. So, okay, my follow-up question to that is when when you're going through this process of fertilisation of the Mm -hmm. egg and there's an assessment by the scientists and AI around, okay, we think that this one is a good one to implant. Yeah. Do you think, and it might already be happening, I don't know, because I've never been through IVF, but is there a process where, say, someone has a limited amount of eggs, there's not much to choose from, Is there capacity to, I guess, uh, change the health of the egg such that it is more optimal at some stage Uh and without getting to Gattaca Uh (laughs) and, you know, influencing specific genes and things like that? Is that that danger territory or do you kind of foresee that happening in the future? In the future, there is the potential for that kind of approach. We're, we're nowhere near that now. Yeah. Our, our mantra has always been one of protecting the inherent quality of the egg as soon as we get it. Mm-hmm. And so we've, we've been working really hard on ways of putting things into the medium to protect the eggs because you have to think about this. The laboratory is a very artificial environment. Yes. It's sitting on a polystyrene plastic surface with a lake of medium overlaid with oil. And even though we've reduced the oxygen concentration, so it's more like mom and we're now providing it with the right nutrients, physically, it's still a very different environment. So um, we're putting things in to protect the embryo more and more. One of the things we've spent a long time working on is antioxidants. So sperm, eggs, and embryos are, are susceptible to what we call oxidative stress. So that can be through exposure to too much oxygen, but also through your basic metabolism. Mm-hmm. You create reactive oxygen species, which unfortunately for all of us is what we, basically how we age. Yeah. Um, the wrinkles that we get and, and everything else is due to accumulated oxidative damage. So we were working on antioxidants as an intervention strategy to prevent that damage from happening to the eggs and the sperm and the embryos. So those are the kind of approaches we've taken. Um, mm. It's been pretty successful to date. Um, And I'm excited to where that kind of work is going to go. Taking a particular egg or a sperm and then trying to turbocharge it, I think we need to know a lot more about the biology of what we're doing before we get into that clinically. Mm. But I'm not going to say that that's never going to happen because the one thing I've learned is you never say never. (laughs) You never say never. I remember as an undergraduate sitting there and they were talking about cloning frogs. And... The lecturer said, of course, you can never clone a human. And I remember writing that down. Of course, you can't clone a human. <laughs> um, or you can't, clone an, you can't clone a mammal. I think that was the real thing. You can't clone a mammal. And then just 25 years later, Dolly the sheep was born. Yes. And I remember the day she was born thinking, never say never. So, And I think what, what's really important, though, is that from the day one of human IVF, the accountability both from the scientific community and the ethics involved in it have been exceptional. Mm. And for those who don't know about Bob Edwards, the scientist, Patrick uh, Steptoe, the physician, Gene Purdy, the first scientist at Bourne Hall, one of the first things they did was create an ethical committee oversight on everything they were doing. I mean, 
talk about forward thinking. They they yeah. were not mavericks at all. They were really, really, and that's something that we all take very seriously because we do realize that you know, to people who don't know what happens in that laboratory, and you've watched Gattaca, you <laughs> <so laughs> mean you know what are they doing in there? I, I want to really make people sleep well. Is that we have tremendous ethical and moral oversight on everything that happens. Yes. And, and in the same way that when we have a new idea, it's incredibly well worked before it ever sees clinical treatment. And mm-hmm. so that's where we're at with these new treatments. I think they're coming down the pipeline. It's going to take a while. I love that. Yeah. Protect the egg and let's just alter the things yeah. around it instead yeah. and just yeah. focus on that optimization. Yeah. One of, one of the beautiful things I think the realization is that as I started when we chatted, is that, you know, you start with this one cell that has the potential to be everything in the body, right? And as it develops, you start to understand some of the pathways that are associated with what I call keeping it embryonic, keeping it perfect. This is the interesting thing. All the things that happen to us as we get older, what we call the aging process, is the same pathways, but inverted. Mm. So it's almost like uh, the embryo is one over aging. It's the perfect cell. And as we get older, all the things that we now realize are important to keeping that egg and the embryo, the perfect cell, are going wrong in us. So it's actually fascinating that the embryo, from my perspective, is not only giving us a lot of information about cancer biology, yeah, but it's actually also a font of knowledge about the aging of us as well. So, you know, you said, how come I'm staying in the same field for 40 <laughs> years? I think this answers the question. It's, it's just, just a gold Fascinating. It, it is, yeah. Absolute gold yeah. run. I wonder yeah. how many, I guess, I, I think of the cosmetic industry and, and things like that who would mm-hmm. <laughs> who would love to be obviously involved mm-hmm. in getting that information. <laughs> but I think most people just head towards the Botox and the um, the facelifts yeah. and things like that instead. Right. Right. Oh, my goodness. David, we're going to wrap up with a rapid fire. Okay. It's the same three questions that we ask every one of our guests. It's not too hard. It's I'm not going to put you in a hot seat like Eddie McGuire or anything like that. Um, so I guess first question is for women entering into the IVF journey, what would be your mm-hmm. top tip for them? Top tip is ensuring you find a physician that you can relate to. Um, you're in their hands. I mean, great physicians work with great teams of scientists. So ask, ask the physician, you know, uh, what does your lab do? Do you know how the lab works? Because that's a sign that that's a team. In, in my experience, the most successful clinics around the world are where you've got brilliant physicians with brilliant scientists, and they work together as an effective team. If you haven't got that teamwork, so that's, that's kind of a nice question to, for them to ask, you know, how mm. well do you know your lab? And good doctors really know what's going on, and that's exciting. So, yeah. That's probably one of the first things. That's a great answer. Absolutely. I, I, when I was in science, I would say to, you know, the undergraduates that were coming through, if you look at a science paper or a nature paper, it's never just one author. No. You know, you always have to have a team to yep. create amazing science. So, Absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah, that's, that's mm. a great answer. Do you have a go-to resource, whether it be a book or a workshop or even a blog or anything like that 
for families entering into the IVF journey. Right, that's also great. I actually really enjoy, you know, I, I, I dive into the websites of all the clinics, you know, and, and get a feel for, for what they're offering because they all have fundamental different values. And I think people will see things that resonate with them. I like to ensure, I, I like to see personally that they've got a promotion of their laboratories because I'm a bit wary of an IVF lab and I and they, they don't promote or talk about what's happening in their, in their field. That's a bit one, one-sided, I know, but I think it also pays to have, then you've got that reassurance when you're looking at various clinics, hey, they've got a really good team behind them. Mm. Okay. And it is the team. You, you nailed it. It's, it. it's absolutely, I always say IVF is the biggest team sport I've ever played. And I hold to that. And so that's, that's the kind of thing I would be looking for. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, and our final question, which we borrowed off Brene Brown. I'm not sure if you are aware yes, of Brene Brown. Yeah. Not personally. <laughs> well, if you do, you need yeah. to introduce me because yeah, I sure, love her. Sure. <laughs> what do you keep on your bedside table? Oh, that is great. <laughs> a, a pile of books, a pile of great books, depending on my bedside table, depending on how, how my mind is coming into land. So I normally have a great novel. Yeah. I, I normally have a science book. And then I, I normally have more of a, a philosophy book. Okay. <laughs> and it depends on how I, my mind is at the end of the day. So you, um, so you are one of those people who reads multiple books at, at the same time? I am. I am. Okay. I love that. I love the fact. And if we had time, I could tell you stories of how books and worlds collide <laughs> when that happens. It's so weird. Um, but, yes, I do. I, I do. So that's why I keep on my bedside. <laughs> that's amazing. And I just wanted to say on that point, because it takes me back to the part where you were telling me how the stem cell researchers were in the back at the yeah, yeah. research yeah. conference. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's something that my PhD supervisor always told me to do, which was every year you obviously go to the conference that is related mm-hmm. to your field, but you need to yeah. pick one conference every year that's not related to your field at all. Well, you think it's not related to your field exactly. and you need to go because you will be as you say, where the human body is not a test tube, things are happening that we cannot see. And I think sometimes we get tunnel vision as scientists yeah. and we try yeah. to stick in our lane. Yeah. But when it's so true, so yeah. true. And, uh, and again, if I don't wish to, but I will have to name drop Bob Edwards again. But like I said at the start, you know, he was kind enough to act as a mentor to me when I was just a wee lad, literally. And One of the things he said, gave me some advice early on, was when you go to the library, don't just look at the reproduction journals. Spend time. So it's the same what you were just saying, but go and read each week other journals in immunology, biochemistry, cell biology, genetics, because they're all cells and you never know, right? So I actually do hold to that. So every week I get this massive feed of information from a thing called PubMed, which is obviously this big search engine basically and it, I put the search in and it weekly sends me these things and for the last 30 40 years i mean as well as reproduction i read about cancer i read about wound healing i read about aging more so now than i've ever done yes <laughs> you know and it's like i said it's all and stem cells um, and it's only by doing that you can see all these pathways and you go wait a minute i i've been trying to understand why that works in the embryo and this is what the cell type does and that makes perfect sense yeah yeah. And so, yeah, it, I absolutely agree. It's just fundamental um, to being a better scientist at doing what you do is to not put blinkers on, to take a step back 
and and go to different conferences if you can. Uh, but if you can't do that, then spend the time with a good cup of coffee, go into the rabbit hole, of, you know, a search engine and see where it takes you that day. It's great. Amazing. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much for your time today, um, Professor David Gardner. I really appreciate it. I've learned so much. Um, as I said, as someone who has an interest in, you know, obviously, the IVF journey, being a scientist and as a mum, this has been amazing. So this has just ended our three-part series so well. And um, thank you so much for your time it's today. It's been a pleasure. It's been, been a great fun. Thank you. Thanks, David. Cheers. See you. Cheers. If you loved this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a review. If you know someone out there who would also love to listen to this episode, please hit the share button so they can benefit from it as well. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. If you would like to contact us, we are at ifillyourcup.com or you can DM us at ifillyourcup underscore via Instagram. You can find all of our services including our postpartum in-home care and our fill your freezer meal delivery service as well through both those channels. Thanks so much for listening.